FDBHDD is reminding Georgians to ask their doctor about alternatives to opioid pain medication. Alternatives such as over-the-counter medications and physical therapy can be used to manage pain. More information at opioidresponse.info. It's a brand new week here on Political Rewind. Thank you all so much for joining us. I'm Bill Nygut, and very glad, as always, to have uh, you with us. We really do have a lot to talk about today, so I want to get right to introducing this terrific uh, panel that's joining me today. Start with uh, Professor Andra Gillespie. You know her. She's a professor of political science at Emory University and also the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference. Andra, how are you? I'm well. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for uh, being here today. You are joined by an Emory colleague today, Fred Smith, professor of constitutional law at Emory University. Fred, before the show went on the air, uh, you as a native of Athens, Georgia, celebrating another big win for the University of Georgia Bulldogs. Mike, Fred, they are an astonishing team to watch. Go dogs! This is definitely the best position that I've ever, that I've seen them in in my lifetime. Says the Emory guy who doesn't have his own football team to cheer for. <laughs> also that. <laughs> yeah, but I'm very glad you're here, uh, Fred. Margaret Coker is back with us. Uh, she, of course, is the editor in chief of the Current, the online newspaper, which is really shaking things up across the state of Georgia, based out of. Savannah, um, Margaret, thank you for being here. Yeah, it's great to be back. Thanks, Bill. Um, by the way, we should tell people that they can go out, give them the URL for The Current. I, I always think we should do that, and, and I don't necessarily get to it every show. Thank you. Yes, we are the currentga.org. As a nonprofit, nonpartisan investigative news organization, we are an ORG, not a .com. Yeah, and, and, and there are a lot of people who believe that's the future for the news business, um, not just digital, we know that's happening, but also increasingly the profit, nonprofit structure, which may save some of the news, right? Fair enough to save, Margaret? Exactly. There's news vacuums that exist all across America, but Georgia is one state that has an immense number of, of um, counties and regions without um, without local news anymore. And so the nonprofit yeah. business model is is propping up um, in order for people to have trustworthy local news again. Well, thank you very much for uh, being here uh, today. Um, we're also joined for the first time by uh, Professor Heather Farley. She is the chairman of the Department of Criminal Justice, Public Policy and Management at the Coastal College, the College of Coastal Georgia. Um, Heather, I'm, I'm very happy you're here. I want to tell people how this happened. Uh, I got an email on Friday from one of your colleagues over there, Melissa Trussell. She wrote to say to me, I can't believe you have been talking about the trial and kind of disparaging the people of Brunswick um, without having anyone from Brunswick on the show. And by the way, Heather, she added that we have been mispronouncing on Friday the name of the defense attorney who caused such a stir. Uh, we called him Kevin Goh. His name is Kevin Goff. Ouch, my feelings, Heather. But <laughs> in any case, <laughs> Melissa suggested that we should invite you, and I'm very, very glad she did. So all that said, welcome to Political Rewind, Heather. Thank you. 
Thank you so much. I, I really am pleased to be able to bring some coastal Georgia perspective to this and, and to join Margaret, who's been doing some really great reporting around this. Yeah, well, I mean, look, let's face it. Melissa made a very, very good point in her note to me. Um, we always like to have a new person. Just give us a little bit about your background. You grew up in, in Marietta, right? You're a native Georgian. Yep, that's right. I, I grew up in Marietta and uh, went to Walton High School and bounced around for my higher education for quite a while um, and uh, got into environmental and public policy and then um, really knew that I wanted to be at a teaching institution. So ended up at the College of Coastal Georgia, where um, where that's really our core mission is uh, teaching and student success. Well, okay, and we're going to talk about Brunswick and the trial as we start the show today. So let's just go back uh, and recap very, very briefly. We know that on uh, Thursday, Kevin Goff, the attorney for uh, Roddy, Roddy Bryan, got up and made a statement which exploded all over news media and in communities around the country, who, people who were offended when he said enough black pastors coming into the courthouse, courtroom. Uh, he was upset because Al Sharpton had been down there leading a demonstration and then asked the judge for permission to sit in the courtroom. And the judge said, fine, anybody is welcome in my courtroom as long as there is room. But by saying no black pastors, no more, um, and by apparently confusing whether Al Sharpton is Jesse Jackson or some other black preacher, uh, created just one more concern about the way in which race has raised its ugly head over and over again in this trial. So let me start, before I turn to the panel, by playing you a couple of sound bites. Number one, on Thursday evening, Ben Crump, who's an attorney for the Arbery family, responded to what Kevin Goff had to say. Let's listen to that. It's very offensive on every level that the family of Ahmaud Arbery cannot have the people who they choose to support them be in the courtroom. Nobody has said in the Cal Rittenhouse trial, people from national uh, high-profile positions can't be in the courtroom to represent him. It seems to be what we always talk about, Wolf, this intellectual justification of discrimination. All right, so that was Ben Crump on Thursday night. On Friday, Kevin Goff understanding the outrage over his remarks, said to the judge that he was going to possibly file a new motion on Monday trying to clarify what he meant. But listen to how he says it in court. Your Honor, I've been asked to address some comments the other day. The court hasn't asked me to do that. Whatever you've been asked to do has not been asked by the court. Very well. I will let the court know that if my statements yesterday were overly broad, I will follow up with a more specific motion on Monday, uh, putting that and those concerns in the proper context. And my apologies to anyone who might have inadvertently been offended. All right. All right, Judge Wamsley, obviously just sick of the whole thing there. Um, okay, let's unpack all of this. First of all, Andre Gillespie, um, we can talk about the controversy in the largest sense, but, uh, you know, an apology had better be an apology. You know, anyone who may have been inadvertently uh, offended, my comments may have been overly broad. Let's speak to that just first and give everybody a chance to weigh in on the so-called apology. 
so I'm, I'm going to quote my um, inadvertent research assistant as my mother, who's the one who has more time to watch this stuff than I do. Um, and her comment last <laughs> night was, um, yeah, if you have to say if I offended you or if you were always sort of predicating it, then it's not an apology. So clearly, and the fact that he's following it up, like with, I'm going to try to clean this up and, and, and make an official motion out of it, I think is a sign that one, he hasn't learned and that he um, doesn't actually think that what he did was, was patently offensive. Um, Fred? Yeah, I mean, I agree with, uh, with all of that. Um, I mean, it's hard to know what his new motion would look like, you know, so, you know, so let's say that this time he doesn't specifically use the phrase black casters. Um, everyone heard him say it a few days ago. Uh, and so that particular intention, at least, is still reflected. Um, and so an, an apology actually gets at the heart of the matter in terms of what he actually said and what it meant to communities, including to the Arbery family, um, which seemed much more appropriate. So, Margaret, you said before the show started that uh, Kevin Goff is kind of inclined to say he's going to bring a motion before the court soon, and then he doesn't end up following up. So when he says he's going to have a motion to try to clarify what he meant, I, I don't know what that motion will be or other, whether we have any reason, Margaret, to think it's coming forward. Yeah, and I'm not a lawyer, nor do I play one on TV, but I don't understand what motion can be brought before the court about an apology that has nothing to do with the case at hand. So he, um, Goff, Goff is, uh, I think, doing his best to to uh, defend his client, with, who is facing um, multiple murder charges, and he might be guilty of having foot and mouth disease at this point. But just... To back up a bit, just so that everyone understands the way that that the the layout of this courtroom um, um, actually is right now, you know, social distancing measures are in place. It is a small courtroom in a not very populous county in coastal Georgia. So there are three defense counsels and uh, and three defendants, and they are facing the judge. They're not facing the gallery. The gallery itself has been cut in half. So that um, only one half of the gallery has uh, has people from the outside of, of the courthouse sitting in it. There is a section that's reserved for defendants, family, relatives, and whoever else they want to bring into court that day. There is a row reserved for media. And then there are rows reserved for the Arbery family and their supporters, their relatives, or their, their spiritual advisors. And so they are sitting in the back of the gallery. There's absolutely... Um, little reason for anyone who sits in the front, um, the co-defense counsels or the defendants, to look back at them. And so the idea that somehow um, someone is causing offense from the back of the gallery, which is silent um, as a grave right now because of Judge Walmsley's insistence on keeping order and decorum in the court, it's really preposterous to think that there is any way, shape or form, a reason for a disturbance in the court that would um, that would predicate a um, an announcement like Goff made last week to begin with, let alone the quality or the tenor of, of his apology last week. Um, so, Heather, um, I mean, we know that Margaret is watching from Savannah, but you're right in the heat of it, in the heart of it all. You're there in Brunswick. And um, it, and, and I think the, con- the questions are, for me, is how, how is the community around you uh, uh, looking at this trial. And when something like these remarks are made, there are people who read the New York Times, the Washington Post, watch cable TV, who are given reason to think that Brunswick must be a really troubled, troubled community. 
Yeah, and and I don't think Kevin Goff is doing us any favors in that regard. Uh, he, you know, this is not the first time either that this lawyer has suggested that the mere presence of uh, of African Americans either outside the courtroom or in the courtroom um, are inherently a uh, a threat or an intimidation. Um, and, and that's not, uh, that doesn't help paint a very good picture of our community to begin with. Um, you know, I think what's missing in the reporting, and, and, and that's not necessarily a criticism, but just if you're not there, you don't see it, which is that uh, we're a deeply hurt community. There's, there's a lot of hurt around this case. Mm-hmm. Um, to, to think that this kind of thing could happen in your own backyard is really painful and sobering. But um, out of this, we have also seen um, the the hard conversations and the important social change I think that needs to be happening in our community is happening. And um, so, for instance, we've had uh, a Better Glen, which is a nonprofit that has um, that has emerged out of this uh, as a social equity um, nonprofit. We've had the Office of Diversity and, and Inclusion was established at the college to guide conversations around these issues. Um, we have seen reconciliation in our uh, in our churches, reconciliation movements there. And then, uh, you know, maybe most importantly, the people of Brunswick and surrounding counties voted out Jackie Johnson. Um, she she was the original DA who suggested that Travis McMichaels did not de- need to be arrested um, and really mishandled the case from the, the beginning. Uh, and she was voted out by by the voters. So, you know, I'm not sort of trying to suggest that inequity or inequality or um, or racism don't exist in Brunswick, you know, just like the rest of the state. I think we grapple with it. Um, but the sort of important conversations and social changes that need to be happening here, they are. Margaret? Yeah, that is exactly right. I mean, it is it is a time and place right now in Brunswick and Glen County where not only has it become synonymous with uh, America's racial reckoning, it's it's actually a community that is, is spending a whole lot of time talking to each other in ways in which it wasn't happening before 2020. And if there is any silver lining in this tragedy of Ahmed Abri's death, it is the fact that the community is having very deeply felt um, discussions right now. There are a group of, of um, pastors, rabbis from different faith communities in the county who are outside the courthouse every single day. They are black. They are also white. Uh, there is a new congregation of, um, you know, Christian congregation that is uh, led by Pastor Drew Thompson that is a biracial congregation, intentionally so, so that there's, of course, traditional um, black uh, churches. There's also traditional white churches. And, you know, um, Pastor Drew's uh, community is trying to bridge those gaps every Sunday and, and then throughout the week. So there is um, there are people who are stuck in their ways, of course. There are people who um, both are racist and see systemic racism embedded in Glen County. And hopefully there's also different bridges through which people like that will be able to talk to each other now. Okay, so all that said, thank you, both of you, for that. That said, uh, Fred, there is no question that race is threaded through this entire trial. It isn't about Glen, Glen County. It isn't about Brunswick. It's about how we deal with race in a broader sense, right? So not only do we have 11 white people and only one black person on the jury, which got a lot of uh, negative reaction, not only do we have Kevin Goff's statement on Thursday, no more black pastors, I noticed something else. It kind of got lost in the shuffle. 
But Larry English, the guy who owns the home that's under construction and who put, you know, remote cameras up so he could see if intruders were coming in, when he called 911, um, in his testimony, we learned that what he said to the 911 operator was, there's a colored guy with very curly hair uh, who's been spotted in, I've seen in the house. So, you know, again, race rears its ugly head, whether we like it or not. Yeah, I mean, I really liked um, Margaret's framing of it, um, America's racial reckoning. And I think that when the history books are written, um, that this, that this that, that's a contender in terms of how um, we think about um, this moment beginning with the, um, the uprisings um, last summer. Um, and uh, part of what we're seeing in this particular trial, though, is that the subtext of race, which is often pre- present uh, in, Amer- in the American criminal legal system, the subtext is just is the text, right? I mean, and you pointed out some of the ways in which uh, that has been so in this particular um, case. Um, and uh, I want to uh, turn to something that Heather said in terms of um, the the view that of on that Goff had that any African-American ministers or uh, public uh, figures are inherently a threat or inherently intimidating. Um, Because built into that thread um, is, uh, there's also an analogy to the actual facts of this case, right? In terms of of Ahmaud Arbery um, being viewed as a threat in part because, uh, in the view of many, in part because of his race. Um, and uh, then there's also built into that, right, um, a broader context in the criminal legal system um, where many scholars like Paul Butler and others um, have written about how um, when police see African-Americans, they're viewed more as a threat and how that's kind of a thread throughout the criminal legal system. And it's one that it's very difficult for the law to get a handle on. Now, sometimes when the subtext becomes the text, it is easier to get a handle on, to state the obvious. This, the judge can't issue an order that says that no black pastors can come into the courtroom, right? Um, that would violate, potentially violate the First Amendment in terms of access to courts. Um, and it would certainly violate the Equal Protection Clause and, um, uh, under the 14th Amendment. Um, uh, but, uh, but, but often it's not so plain stated. Uh, and so we don't have the opportunity to, uh, to deal with it um, in this sort of uh, direct way. Um, and so, uh, in some ways, when it comes to America's racial reckoning, um, the fact that this, the subtext is the text um, is helpful for us to interrogate it and to look to other places in the American criminal legal system where some of these themes are also present. Andra? You know, I mean, I just want to build on what Fred said. I, I, I completely agree. And so it's this idea that black pastors can't come into this courtroom and sit and mind their own business and not be disruptive because there's never been an allegation of disruption at all in this particular case. And, and that's the point, that black people are kind of going about their daily business, and yet they are perceived as being intimidating, and yet their lives could be threatened by people who think that they are intimidated. And so that really is at the heart of the case. But then there's just also this issue of being seen. So part of it was golf, like being told, I was told there were people in here kind of situation without actually knowing his seemingly um, misunderstanding or not understanding the difference between Al Sharpton and William Barber, which I don't understand, right? That just goes to this um, all black people look alike thing. And if you've ever seen the two of them, Al Sharpton is very small um, and William Barber is very big. 
Um, and so the fact that you would mix those two is just, you know, sort of inherent of sort of the racial blinders that one would have on here. Or just the idea of you still want to view Al Sharpton. And I, I get that Sharpton's still a polarizing figure, but this is not Al Sharpton of, of 19, you know, 87, 88 with Tawana Brawling. This is a, a very different person who's standing up and supporting, you know, a family that is hurting, that is reeling in, in, in this particular case. And especially given the fact that, and, and Fred can tell me if I'm wrong, I don't think Batson was applied sort of properly here because there's just no way you should have, given the demographics of Glenn County, a jury that has 11 white jurors on it. Um, so given the fact that you already got away with that, the fact that you are now going to go egg this on just makes this all the more problematic. Yeah, I mean, even Judge Wamsley said that he recognized that there was some racial aspect to the jury selection, but he felt that the, the defense uh, did were able they were able to cite other reasons beside race uh, that ameliorated it to some extent. And of course, the prosecution cannot appeal a verdict once handed down, so it's become sort of a moot point. Heather, why don't you weigh in on that? And then I want to move on to talk about a way in which the Kyle Rittenhouse uh, case and the trial in Brunswick have been brought together around the issue of guns. But go ahead and finish this off on this part of the conversation, Heather. Thanks. I was just going to mention that I think um, Goff and the defense team's um, approach here is a lot more intentional than maybe we give them credit for. Um, there seems to be, they're, they're really laying the groundwork to uh, perhaps say, uh, uh, ask for a mistrial or, um, or perhaps and, they're also uh, clearly trying to use race as the basis of the self-defense case to say that, uh, you know, if African-Americans are inherently um, intimidating, inherently a threat, then self-defense is a reasonable, uh, a reasonable plea. Well, thank you, because that moves us exactly where I think we should go next. Margaret, um, uh, Shayla Dwan for the New York Times wrote a piece that I think is really worth our taking a few minutes to talk about. The headline was, Can Self-Defense Laws Stand Up to a Country Awash in Guns? And allow me to just read some from her article to set us up for this. She writes, As two closely watched murder trials played out in two different states this past week, meeting Rittenhouse and Arbery's uh, uh, murder, uh, 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 people standing trial for the murder, juries heard strikingly similar stories. Men took up guns in the name of protecting the public, and when they wound up killing unarmed people, they claimed self-defense. And then here's a quote from an expert on Constitution on Second Amendment. Uh, in other words, their own decision to carry a gun became a justification to use it, lest it be wrestled away from them, said Eric Rubin, an expert on the Second Amendment at SMU. For legal experts like Mr. Rubin and others, these two cases expose deep fault lines in the legal and moral concept of self-defense. Margaret? Yeah, there there are lots of... Um Lots of uncharted territory there, or charted territory that's being recharted now um, since um, since 2020. Because, you know, I, I was also reading and listening to to other pieces over the weekend where this idea it's not just about self defense; it's the reasonable 
reasonable clause of, of a self-defense statute. Which community believes it's reasonable for armed white people to enter into a public place, whether it is a public street in Satilla Shores or a public protest on the streets of Kenosha, Wisconsin, enter into that uh, milieu with a gun and then feel like your your life is, is under threat? Um, which where do we where do we draw a line as communities about who is the aggressor of of a, a situation versus who feels threatened by the same situation? And I don't I don't know that there there is enough case law out there that that's going to um, that's going to make this an open and shut case either in um, in Brunswick right now or in Kenosha. Um, I do know, if, having sat through a lot of the jury selection um, for the Ahmed Aubrey murder trial, there were. Dozens, dozens, maybe a hundred, more than a hundred white uh, prospective jurors who said they saw the video that had been recorded by William Roddy Bryan and saw from the video that this was a case um, that lots of white people said this was a hate crime. This was cold-blooded murder. This was a problematic situation that obviously the white defendants in this case um, had instigated. And they were struck for cause because of their fixed opinions of the case. But I can say that as a community, Brunswick and Glen County does have a pretty... um, a pretty straightforward view in a lot of ways about what happened um, on on the streets of Satilla Shores on February 23rd, 2020. Yeah, well, sure, right. Um, The one concern that emerges uh, is that if most people who have seen the video draw that conclusion, and I intentionally have not seen the video, if most people who have seen that video draw that particular conclusion, um, and everyone who has drawn that particular conclusion uh, is struck from the jury, then it raises the question about who's left on the jury, right? And that's, uh, and that's, um, I'm, you know, we, we can be hopeful and optimistic, right? That it's a true subset uh, of uh, Brunswick. Um, but, you know, I think time will tell whether or not that is, and that is in fact the case. Um, yeah, I can leave it there. So, but I've got to get to a break, but Andra, I think what I'm hearing here in terms of this question of, you know, how self-defense is being used as a defense, um, in the Arbery case where race is, is certainly clear, you, you can't separate this notion of a question of with a proliferation of guns in our society, and if you decide to carry one uh, in a public place— you, you can't necessarily separate that claim of self-defense from the fact that you've acted upon uh, a minority, a person of color, in shooting them, right? So at least in the Arbery case, they're kind of intertwined. Well, um, one of the things that we haven't talked about is, you know, part of the justification in both Kenosha um, and in, in, in Brunswick is the idea that the victims tried to grab the gun in an attempt to try to save themselves, presumably, and that that was viewed as an aggressive act that is now being used as an attempt to try to justify self-defense in these situations. And so that's raising all kinds of questions. And again, it ties into this notion of who's inherently more intimidating than another person. So if a black person grabs a gun because they're trying to save their own life, what are their self-defense rights? And if they're dead, it's hard to be able to speak for them. And I think one of the other issues in terms of differences, like there is uh, legions of, of, of research that will point to the fact that there are differences in public opinion in terms of the attitudes that blacks and whites hold in particular. So I can go on and on and on about that. Also, in terms of lived experience and what people are paying attention to, we would expect that media consumption might be different in this case. And part of the reason why we end up with this jury of 11 white people is that black people were affected deeply by this. 
Um, and they watched and they mourned and they developed opinions, and then that ends up disqualifying them for being a part of this jury. And what does it mean when you've got people who have their heads under rocks in general, but in particular when whites might have more of a luxury to be able to do that? Because blacks are looking at that as, oh, I have to be careful when I go out. My life might depend on it. So, of course, they're going to be more informed about this, and then they can't participate sort of in part of these very important community deliberations. All right, we have to stop there because I'm already very late. Sam Burmistaw is tearing his hair out saying, get to a break. Sam, relax. It's time for a break. We'll be right back. We're joined today by the current editor-in-chief, Margaret Coker, by political science professor at Emory University, Andre Gillespie, by constitutional law professor at Emory, Fred Smith, and um, our news panelist, uh, Heather Farley, who is the chair of the Department of Criminal Justice, Public Policy, and Management at the College of Coastal Georgia. But let me add to that, you are also, Heather, uh, a a researcher at the Murphy Center for Economic and Policy Studies at the uh, school as well. Uh, That's a lot, Heather. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> it it is uh, and it is a lot of fun <laughs> oh good all right let me start let's move on and heather please uh, let me start with you if i may um so today president biden signs the infrastructure bill they're going to have a big ceremony uh because democrats are really nervous that they have not done a particularly good job communicating the specifics within this measure all that we're hearing about is the price tag And as a result of that, there are a lot of people who don't understand it at all. So they're going to have a big signing ceremony. And we've learned this morning that most of the 13 Republicans who crossed over to vote in the House, who crossed over to vote for the bill, are not going to be there, nor are many of the senators who voted for the bill. All of that is part of this longer conversation about the extraordinary partisanship over a measure that in most normal times would have gotten vast bipartisan support, Heather, because after all, there's going to be huge sums of money coming to every state across the country. And here in Georgia, just to lead into turning it over to all four of you, here in Georgia, we're going to get tons of money for roads and bridges, for uh, broadband, for uh, repair at airports. And yet every one of Georgia's Republican members of the House voted against this bill. A partisanship in the extreme, Heather. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And, you know, I've uh, worked on some economic development uh, teams in Brunswick um, that uh, have sort of looked at things like broadband in Glynn County, um, have looked at uh, public health outcomes as they relate to broadband. Um, and, and all of this seems like it would be really, really fantastic. But I think all of these sort of lines around what is acceptable in American politics and what uh, will still allow you to be electable have changed dramatically. Uh, we see we see people doing things and saying things in the public eye that just six years ago would have been, would have completely disqualified them from being elected. And now um, the polarization that is heated up in our country um, 
has really led people to see the opposite party as as the other, as the enemy, and that that moves the line of acceptability. And uh, and I and I think that's uh, you know not to be too over dramatic about it, but I think that really that threatens and dilutes democracy. Margaret, what happened to this notion that a member of Congress is is asked by constituents, hey, are you bringing home the bacon for our, the, our communities? Um, you know, I, we know that for many years uh, in the olden days, it used to be that people would say to their representatives, stop spending so much money. We've got to cut down on spending in Washington. You're going overboard. Oh, but please don't, you know, take any money out of what we need for our district. All of that has kind of changed. Well, I think that um, that congressmen, actually, congresswomen, too, have gotten much more savvy about speaking publicly and acting privately. For example, in coastal Georgia, we are represented by Representative Buddy Carter. Buddy Carter is notorious for sitting down with constituents on both um, sides of the spectrum, the political spectrum, and saying that he will advocate for, for on their behalf as long as they publicly don't say that um, he is requesting earmarks for them. Um, and so, you know, Buddy Carter, like every Republican member of the Georgia delegation, is going to love federal funding coming into their district, and they're probably going to take credit for it, but they're going to use some really, really savvy wordsmithing in order to um, not call it uh, Biden money or Democrat money or federal money. They're going to um, talk about the ways in which it is good for their community, whether it is better broadband access for rural Georgians or urban Georgians, whether it is more warehousing and train lines for the Port of Savannah or anything else under the sun. Just don't call it the toxic words that they've made toxic in this hyperpartisan world that we live in. If I could channel Alan Abramowitz now, and I'm sure he's listening, right? He would just highlight <laughs> negative partisanship. And so the idea yeah. that you stand for what the against whatever the other side um, is standing for. And so here it has now been taken to an illogical extreme. So people are actually going to turn down really important goods and services and infrastructure that's needed in every community, regardless of how people vote in, in, in that particular community. Um, and then there are people who are trying to enforce it via their armchairs for their cell phone messages when they are cursing out um, and literally threatening the lives of Republican members of Congress who voted for this bill because they put the interests of their constituents ahead of partisanship. So I think that this does actually, you know, as, as, as Heather said, reflect a, you know, really sad time, an erosion of our civility, um, an erosion of democratic norms um, in our community. But unfortunately, um, I can't say that I am surprised by, by, by this at all. You know, the only thing that I would say is for uh, Democrats who are running against these folks is, you know, call people um, out on their hypocrisy. If they want to take credit for something that they voted against, you know, I don't think it's going to change people's minds, but it, 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 you know, it may make sense to try to point out, but wait a minute, you voted against us. So yeah, it's still helping you, but uh, you know, it shouldn't, perhaps you shouldn't try to take credit for it when you're trying to, to garner votes from it. So uh, Fred, let me just very quickly go over some of the money that's headed to Georgia. A minimum of $9 billion for roads, uh, $225 million for bridges, a minimum of $100 million for broadband, $1.4 billion for public transportation, $619 million for airports, $8 million for ports. And Margaret mentions the Port of Savannah as an example of that. There's going to be money for the electrical grid in the state. There's going to be money, $135 plus million for climate change. Now, Fred, to give them their due, 
or or to give them their rationale. Um, some Republicans have some Republicans have simply said we're voting against it because we're not going to do anything to advance the Biden agenda. They've been very clear about that. There have been those like a Kevin McCarthy who said, well, the infrastructure bill is just an excuse. If we vote for that, we're opening the door for this outrageously expensive social policy bill that's coming next. So they're they're you know they're either against it because it's democratic, or they claim to be against it because they don't want to uh, open the door for the social policy bill. Yeah, well, but if you like the if you like the infrastructure bill, you don't like the social policy bill, then there's a way to handle that, which is you vote for the infrastructure bill and you vote against the social policy bill. Um, uh, and so that starts to, I mean, the, the, the fact that that's not the strategy, right, uh, goes to what others have been saying, that this is uh, a moment for partisanship, right? And so you, you say that, you know, there was a time where uh, people asked, did you bring home the bacon? And now more and more voters are asked, well, I don't know who uh, who, who cooked that bacon. Um, but, you know, I, I would think that, um, that be able to say that you participated in the process, that you may not like everything in the bill, but you brought home things for Georgians would be an ideal political position to be in, at least for, uh, you know, for, for some, uh, for some Congress folks, because as you describe it, there's something in this bill for people in every part of the state, right? So if you're, the, the Port of Savannah is, it's crucial, not just to that region, but it's crucial to the entire state. It's one of our primary economic engines, as is our airport. Um, and locally uh, in the metro area, if we're going to get a handle on uh, congestion, public transportation, which is also in that bill, is important. And we across the state, but we in, in Atlanta in particular, are very. we know what happens when you don't take care of your infrastructure, when you don't take care of your bridges. Um, they can literally fall down. Um, you know, when when, th- when things are going right, <laughs> when you're when you're making the right investments over time, it's something you almost don't think about. But because we've been so neglectful on infrastructure for so long, um, the we can see in front of our eyes what that looks like. Um, just driving down the street, frankly, um, and dodging potholes or dodging potholes on your whether it's in your car or in your bike, um, we know what that looks like. And for people who uh, who can listen to the show on the radio, but can barely listen to the show on the internet because they because they don't have broadband access in rural parts of the state. This bill is an attempt to do something about that. Um, and you would think it's the type of thing that we can all rally around. The last thing I'll say though is that for this day and age, this was bipartisan. Like, this was this is this is one mm-hmm. of the most bipartisan <laughs> things we've seen, right? So I mean, I know that I know that every member of the Georgia Republican delegation voted against it, but there were 13 Republicans who voted for it. There were some Democrats. Uh, who thought that it wasn't enough uh, and voted uh, against it. And then in the Senate, you saw a great deal of bipartisanship, uh, including a bill, uh, an amendment um, from Reverend Warnock and uh, Senator Cruz, um, uh, who to get Senator Cruz, who came together um, for um, for uh, for for investments in uh, interstates. So, um, and- so yeah, so that. Okay. I'm I'm sorry, Fred. I didn't mean to cut you off. You want to finish that? I, no, I didn't know how I was going to land the plane, so I was really grateful for your interruption. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, I, I want to talk in a minute. Let's. We got to get another break out of the way because I've been running late the whole show. Uh, but when we come back, I, Andra already mentioned it. It's not just that Republicans are voting against it. There are Republicans who, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who are attacking in the most pernicious ways uh, the, their fellow Republicans who voted for it, and they're being followed uh, by uh by citizens 
who are issuing death threats at those 13 Republicans and more. We'll talk about that after we take our final break of the show. We're back on political uh, rewind. Heather Farley, so um, Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, um, was one of the people who set out a just a, an outrageous uh, tweet calling the Republicans who voted for the infrastructure bill traitors. She set out uh, the names of those Republicans with their phone numbers, encouraging people to call and complain. But a number of people, I don't know how many, we don't have data on this, a number of people did more than just complain. They said to people like Fred Upton, the Republican from Michigan who voted for it, I, I hope you die. I hope your family dies. The toxicity has reached levels that this weekend the New York Times wrote a piece suggesting that we are closer to outbreaks of violence, of, of political violence in this country than ever before. Heather? Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, I think this came up on the show a few weeks ago as it related to the, the threats to school boards as well. And, uh, you know, what I mean when I say that this is a threat to democracy is that people simply are going to stop wanting to participate in this system and stop running for elected office when needing to have security uh, as part of your campaign or needing to, uh, you know, protect your family is a part of an expected part of the campaign process that I, that just, it really erodes the system, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, it's just very disappointing to see. Andra? Actually, um, and we see evidence of that already. Uh, there's a book by Daniel Thompson, professor at Cornell, that, that says that this has actually uh, made moderates in particular be less likely to want to turn out. So they already have the threat of always being challenged by their extreme flanks in whichever party they're in. But then that, you know, just this sort of heightened hyperpartisanship is, is, is keeping the people who some of us might actually view as the more reasonable, pe reasonable people from wanting to participate. But it's just the overall threat of violence and it's the othering that bothers me. So, uh, you know, I think about sort of working in, in comparative context where uh, it was usually that notion of othering people that usually was a precursor to things like genocide and other kinds of things. And I think we think that we're immune from that and not susceptible to it, but we in fact are. Um, and I've always been hesitant to say this because I didn't want to speak something into existence, you know, unnecessarily, but it's getting to a point now where it seems like, you know, kind of in the words of Gabe Sterling, somebody's going to get shot, right? And, and I hate for that to have to be our wake-up call, but it seems like we are headed down that path unless we make some really, really important substantive changes. So I'm going to jump in here and say that um, probably a, um, a self-conscious plug for, for individual news organizations like The Current to stop the othering, to stop mm -hmm. the nationally driven political messaging. We need better local news organizations. We need better local media altogether. We need to understand that uh, as communities, we live together, we have similar problems, and we have to come together in order to solve those problems for all of us. So I would say that, again, maybe it's a devil's advocate position. I've never been accused of being a Pollyanna. I'm pretty much a, a skeptical, cynical person. But 
You know, last year in Savannah, we had a district attorney's race here that was marked by a lot of outside money and national messaging. That national messaging went incredibly sour and very, very anti-Semitic very quickly, as well as as overtones of, of racism. And as a group, Savannians uh, rejected that. We have a very strong history of being uh, both united and peaceful and organized in terms of our civil rights history and and our city politics. And as rejecting those outside messaging, um, the incumbent loss, we have a new DA as a result. And I would say that, you know, what one of the great things that we have here in coastal Georgia, I hope it's true across the rest of the state, we do have a history of civility. We do have a history of politeness. Sometimes that politeness keeps change from happening because nobody wants to um, be aggressively on the forefront of a vanguard of radical change on either direction. But still, I hope that we can um, call upon that cultural attribute that we as Georgians all um, know and recognize and hopefully um, keep our community from going down the drain. With that, Margaret, thank you for an optimistic uh, vision for the future that that seems uh, unlikely, but thank you for at least offering it up. We have to talk about it or it'll certainly never happen. Let me change subjects if I can, because I think it's important for just at least a moment, Fred, uh, since you are a constitutional law expert. The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, they're out of New Orleans, right? And they're one of the most conservative appeals courts in the country. And they have now extended their stay to uh, uh, to deny the uh, vaccine mandate, the Biden vaccine mandate. Um, of course, we know that Governor Kemp, Attorney General Chris Carr are part of a lawsuit to uh, overturn uh, the mandate as well. And the Fifth Circuit basically said, look, we do think it's quite likely that in, on, on, as this case moves forward, the president's going to lose because he overreached. Give us just your quick thought on, on what this means to the future of the mandate. Yeah, so this is almost certainly going to end up going to the Supreme Court. Um, as many things from the Fifth Circuit as of late uh, have, uh, they've, been, uh, they've been quite, quite uh, aggressive um, in, in, the last, uh, in the last year or so. Um, in this particular instance, as you note, um, they have uh, temporarily halted um, the, the mandate, and this is something that's going to, uh, again, almost certainly be appealed to the Supreme Court. There's a few aspects of the reasoning um, that I think people are, um, are, have expressed some concerns about. Um, so in order to get to the conclusion that they did, the Fifth Circuit said that this wasn't, that COVID-19 wasn't a new hazard um, within the meaning um, of uh, the law. Um, and made a fairly aggressive argument that new hazard uh, has to mean uh, a, a specifically a poisonous toxin, even though there's there's no language in the law defining uh, hazards that particular way. Um, also, when they uh, look to whether or not a stay would be in the public interest, they only look to questions about federalism and constitutional design, which uh, are important, but they made no uh, even mention um, when they were weighing the public interest of the public health crisis that is uh, COVID-19. Yeah, I thought it was also interesting that they said that they didn't believe when when OSHA said they're doing this as a workplace safety measure, they didn't believe that. They thought that this was being instituted as a way to get more people vaccinated. It was a way to uh, advance the Biden agenda, which I thought was also an interesting take on uh, their part. So thank you for that. All right. Before we finish, because I mentioned it at the very top of the show, I, we're, we're running short. Andre Gillespie, Newt Gingrich, remember he used to live in Georgia. 
Georgia. He hasn't for a very long time, but he seems determined that he should weigh in on Georgia politics when he wants to. He's now come out on the David Perdue side of the governor's race. He says, he said this weekend, Brian Kemp can't beat Stacey Abrams. David Perdue can. Uh, Kemp, it's just getting harder and harder for Kemp to see a clear path to victory in the Republican primary, at least. Yeah, I mean, I think part of this might be motivated by just the support of Donald Trump. So knowing that David Perdue would have the support of Donald Trump in ways that Brian Kemp doesn't. Uh, Gingrich is actually, I think, banking on the fact that uh, uh, Kemp could actually or that Purdue could actually, one, rally people in a primary, but then rally people further in a general election. Um, that's the only thing that I would, you know, refer to it. I think at this point we know that Newt Gingrich is going to pontificate whenever he wants to. He still has family in the state. So, you know, we take it at that. And, and I, you know, I understand what he's saying, but, you know, this doesn't bode well for, for Governor Kemp and his reelection bid. And it looks like he's going to, you know, that there's a, a decent chance that he's going to get a very, very serious challenger. Whether or not David Perdue is actually better positioned other than his Trump support to be able to beat Stacey Abrams, given the fact that he just lost. Um, a statewide race, I think, is an entirely different story. And so uh, I wouldn't exactly characterize Purdue as the perfect candidate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Heather, we're running out of time, but I think you must have grown up in Newt Gingrich territory. Weigh in real quickly on this. Yeah, that's right, in in Cobb County. Um, (laughs) You know, but now where I live in in a more rural district, I think um, diluting the ticket here uh, by having a challenger is really, um, it, it's not going to do Kemp any favors. And it, it makes it very difficult for Republican strongholds like rural Georgia um, to to put all of their weight behind one candidate or another when you have such, uh, such two such strong candidates uh, opposing one another. All right. Heather Farley, you get the last word on today's political. It's one of those shows where we need two hours. Why don't we just keep talking and see if we can take over? I know we really can't do that. But Heather Farley, Andre Gillespie, Margaret Coker, and Fred Smith, thank you for a wonderful conversation on the show today. By the way, those of you who are interested in the mayor's runoff tomorrow, the Atlanta Press Club Loudermilk Young Debate Series is going to host runoff debates for mayor, for city council president, and we're going to air them on GPB TV tomorrow at 7 o'clock, starting at 7 o'clock in the evening for the mayoral runoff debate. We're out of time for today's show. Lots more coming up tomorrow. In the meantime, um, thanks to Sam Burmistaws, Jesse Neiswanger, and Sarah Callis for their work on the show, as always. I'm Bill Nygut. I'll see you tomorrow. But in the meantime, please take care and stay healthy. Bye-bye, everybody.